Bikini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. It is October. It is Legal Face Off. There is so much going on. Welcome in. The Legal Eagles are here. I'm actually, if you can't tell, that's the ocean out there. That's the Pacific Ocean. I'm in San Diego, so we're remote oh. here. Rich is in front of the 85 sign. And Tina, I think you're still in the kitchen, right? I, I am, but this is the last time you're seeing this kitchen. I'm moving in a week. Oh, okay. So, so a lot going on. I woke up. I woke up this morning to learn the president has COVID. So we will discuss that. We've got the SCOTUS panel. We'll talk inside out. Also, the tax returns for the president. And at the end of the show, the legal grab bag per usual. Let's get into the SCOTUS panel, though. A lot going on. Amy Coney Barrett, of course, is the president's pick. So to talk about this panel, let's bring back in Andy Devote, who does not have the jacket yet for being on legal face off five Great. times. He is a partner at Loeb and Loeb and, of course, a former Supreme Court law clerk. Andy, welcome back. Good to see you. Professor Stephen Vladek is the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts. He's the University of Texas School of Law. Professor, welcome. Thanks for having me. And Professor David Strauss, University of Chicago School of Law, the Gerald Ratner Distinguished Service Professor of Law, Faculty Director of the Jenner and Block Supreme Court and Appellate Clinic. Professor, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Professor Vladek, you have said that uh, Judge Barrett's, soon to be probably Justice Barrett's confirmation, would transform the court into the most conservative court since the 1930s. Would you explain why? Yeah, I mean, I think just, you know, looking at the composition of the justices, you know, she's replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who obviously was a staple of the court's more progressive block. Um, it's as transformational a single appointment as we've seen since Justice Clarence Thomas was appointed to replace Justice Thurgood Marshall in 1991. But now it's taking a court that was 5-4, um, right? And it's moving it much further to the right, where now it's not going to be enough for one of the conservatives to cross over in these high-profile divisive cases. You're only going to see a progressive win when two of them do. You know, we can only think of one high-profile case in the last couple of years where that even happened, the LGBT Title VII case from, from, from the spring. Professor Strauss, Judge Barrett identifies closely with the justice who she once clerked for, the late Antonin Scalia. More than any other justice, he popularized the idea of originalism, meaning that the court should interpret the Constitution as it was originally intended by the founders. That said, Scalia often referred to himself as a faint-hearted originalist. How do you think Judge Barrett will interpret originalism? Well, Tina, the thing is, originalism, in my view at least, is just not a, a plausible or coherent way to interpret the Constitution. It just doesn't make any sense. It's a kind of a rhetorical form people use to wrap around conclusions they reach for other reasons. And the reason Justice Scalia said he was a faint-hearted originalist was he, on some level, understood this. You can't really try to turn the clock back and look to a bunch of you know, white property owners from the 18th century to resolve today's disputes. So I don't, I don't think that Judge Barrett's commitment to, a, to originalism, so-called, is, I don't think that's what's going to make the difference. I think she's in tune with her former boss, Justice Scalia, on a lot of issues, a lot of issues about the proper role of government in American life, about religion, about speech, um, about abortion, certainly. And I think that's where you'll see her following in his footsteps. And, the, and you clerked for what seemed like a very conservative justice in Chief Justice Warren Quist, maybe in, with hindsight, not as conservative as some of the you know, judges we're seeing now. But it seems like 
Scalia didn't totally ignore precedent and that maybe Justice Coney, Justice Barrett, I should say, would be more in the mold of a Justice Clarence Thomas, who does seem to have no problem overturning many long established decisions. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's going to be interesting. So first of all, I think is the professors you're lucky to have on this panel could tell you that the Chief, Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, you saw him uh, change a little bit over time when he became the chief, right? He used to be referred to as the lone dissenter. He had a lone ranger doll his clerks had given him in his office. And when he became the chief, I think as some people have tried to analogize with Chief Justice Roberts, you've seen his views shift a little bit, at least sometimes in some of these cases. But I mean, yeah, that's what's going to be interesting, I think, because you know, when you look at the Louisiana to take the abortion case, the, the June case, which was the law, the Louisiana law, very similar to the Texas law, where uh, the chief justice added the fifth vote based on precedent. Justice Thomas was the only justice who outright, as I recall, outright said, you know, all these decisions, there's no basis for it. The other justices took more of a, got into the weeds about the regulations or said that you needed to go back. I think Justice Kavanaugh said to send it back for more information. So whether or not she takes Roe v. Wade head on, to me, it's more that I think to uh, you know the earlier comments, you have this vote that I think on cases like abortion is going to likely not strike down regulations like that. And so it's going to, even if you don't overturn Roe v. Wade, to take that example, I think it's going to gut the decision, right? If you make it practically impossible the way in, law, in Louisiana, with 10,000 abortions a year, they would have been left with one doctor who could perform 1,000 or 1,500. Then there's 8,500 women who they may, in theory, uh, have Roe v. Wade, but they, they don't have access to that. So that's where I see the real, the real crux here is even if she's not joining Justice Thomas in those opinions, if she's that other vote, and it doesn't even matter what Chief Justice Roberts does, to me, that's the real impact. Professor Strauss, you're quoted as saying that religion is an agenda item for the Roberts Court in a way that it wasn't for prior courts. What do you mean and how will Judge Barrett view issues like public funding of religious education and employer religious objections to the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, it's a great question, Tina, and it really hooks into something that Rich and Andy were just talking about. I think that there is a real sense on the current court that religious believers are under attack in this country. Um, and too often, uh, government is insensitive to their interests, and that'll play itself out in abortion. It'll play itself out in a lot of different contexts in the rights of, of LGBTQ people, which is even flagged in that decision that was otherwise favorable to mm. LGBT people. Right. And I should say, this is actually an area, going back to uh, the question Rich asked Andy, this is an area where the court is likely to move to the right of Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia, one of his most important opinions, was actually an opinion that said religious believers have no special claims to exemptions. If there's a law that applies to everybody, religious believers have to comply with it too. Um, of course, they can't be discriminated against, but they're not going to get any favored treatment. That decision in which Justice Scalia wrote the opinion, one of his most important opinions, there is a serious question whether this court will overrule that decision. It's up before the court this term. Um, and it's, a, it's emblematic of how, as, it's, as Steve said, this appointment is going to move the court further to the right. But the march to the right began 50 years ago. It's been 50 years since there was a majority of the court appointed by uh, since, since in the last 50 years, the majority of the court has always been appointed by Republicans. 
Um, and so this is just one further step to the right, to the point where uh, I think a lot of these justices will sort of re be repudiating elements of Justice Scalia's uh, legacy, uh, although he previously was thought to be the most conservative justice on the court. That's really interesting. Professor Vladek, what are your thoughts on that? And especially in light of uh, Judge Barrett's uh, religious background that's been now made, you know, it's been such an issue has been made out of it. Um, you know, she's been accused of uh, practicing dogma. And of course, a lot of her supporters are alleging some religious discrimination is being practiced. What are your thoughts on what Professor Strauss just said? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I actually think it's, it's, if anything, I think David undersold it, which is, you know, the the case he alluded to, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, is to be the single biggest case the court has this term. Um, and that's with the ACA case, that's with the specter of election disputes, because the Scalia precedent is such a, a bedrock of not just abortion and not just um, employment discrimination and school teachers, but, you know, can we apply zoning laws to churches, um, right? I mean, that's like how, you know, sort of bare fundamental this idea is. And if we're going to get to a point where religious liberty all of a sudden is a thumb on the scale against all government regulation, um, that, you know, I think might have consequences that justices aren't necessarily comfortable with when it comes to religions they don't identify with, right? That, that it's going to inevitably provoke um, confrontation when different religious beliefs actually swim in different directions on one of these issues. And so, you know, I think it's a very dangerous road to go down whether or not you sympathize with the results. Um, because the more the court is injecting itself into these kinds of religious disputes, the more it's setting up the specter of religions running into each other. And in that respect, I mean, it's not just that, you know, a Justice Barrett would be, I think, a devout you know, practicing member of her faith. It's that, you know, that's true of a majority of the justices, that in a country where there are a whole lot of people who identify as, you know, not fervently religious, um, maybe culturally religious, right? We have a court that is disproportionately committed to fairly devout aspects of faith. Um, you know, I don't deny anyone's right to do that. It's just interesting in how that skews the way that the court looks at what's going on on the ground in the country versus the way that we might you know, out in the out in the streets. And I think to Steve's point, uh, good point that there's a lot of this talk about judges are to apply the law uh, like they're robots. And I just, you know, as I've gotten older, the more I have more of a difficult time with that. No matter what a person's background is, we're all human. I mean, I clerked for Judge Caney in the Seventh Circuit, and you know, he had two daughters, and there's no question that that impacts how he looks in employment cases, even if. Uh, you would say Judge Caney's a conservative on the Seventh Circuit uh, or, or this. And I, so whether or not someone is consciously, in my opinion, just we are, your experiences shape you. And I think that when you sit down and look at a situation, to Steve's good point, like even if you're not uh, consciously trying to practice your own religion, I mean, it's a part of who you are and it impacts, I think. So in a case like you're talking about this term, I think that's really important. Andy, let's keep going with you talking about the reason why we're all here. The, uh, amazing life and career of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You clerked for, as we mentioned, Chief Justice Rehnquist in 0203. What was your former boss's relationship like with RBG? And do you have any, you know, anecdotes or stories about your interactions with her that we haven't heard? I know, you know, when you're clerking for one justice, you probably don't interact with the others too much, but uh, wondering what your take is on, uh, on the great, great. Sure. I'll, I'll keep it short because you've got such great panelists that we want to hear from, but uh, two, two things. One, the Chief Justice, 
uh, and I know I don't think he'd mind me saying this. He loved the way she wrote. He, I remember an opinion came around, and it was something to the effect about, you know, I love the way Ruth writes, or something like that. He really admired admired that. I think he thought she the craft, you know, she practiced craft very well. Um, and it was literally, I love the way Ruth writes, you know, like in. Uh, and the second thing I would say, actually, she went out of her way to interact with the clerks. We had the wonderful opportunity to sit with her um, and her husband baked baked goods for us, just like you hear. And we sat down and had tea with her, you know, I think about 30 minutes and she was pleasant. Um, you know, obviously uh, a little intimidating just because I am definitely a think out loud type of guy, as you know, Rich, and she's so precise. And, you know, so you're sitting there as a young law clerk, like, don't say something stupid. Don't, you know, don't say something stupid. But I mean, she, she, she was great. And um, obviously her career speaks for itself. Professor Strauss, Vladek, just a couple seconds left. What are your, uh, what, what, how will history look back at uh, the career of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the bench? I would use the word transformative. I mean, she moved from an era in which women were definitely second-class citizens to a world in which whatever sort of might be going on on the ground, it was just not acceptable to view women that way anymore. And not only did she span those eras, she was, as much as anyone, responsible for bringing about that change. And I would just add that I think, you know, we can count on one hand the number of justices on the Supreme Court in American history who would have had a place in history even if they had never been on the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, that list starts with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And someone said, you know, someone talked about how many people dress up like RBG and how many people have tattoos. I don't think there's many uh, people running around with uh, Earl Warren tattoos on their arms. So that, <laughs> that might be a good indication of her influence on, uh, on the world. Rich, we weren't supposed to talk about my, my, my body art, man. Come on. <laughs> your, Justice well, Taft, your Justice Taft tattoo. Before the comedy hour starts, I'm going to let you all go. Professor Vladek, Professor Strauss, Mr. DeVote, thank you all for joining us on Legal Face Off. Thanks, thank for, thanks for having us. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, Contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff. We have a very special guest, one of our frequent legal analysts on uh, Legal Faceoff, Ellie Honick from Lowenstein Sandler. He's a former federal prosecutor. He is also, you see him all the time on CNN as a legal analyst. Ellie, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Rick. Good to be with you. There's so much breaking news. Our mind is exploding. Uh, yeah. We would have known that the Supreme Court panel that we just had on would be the lesser news that's <laughs> happening today. But we want to talk to you specifically about the 25th Amendment yeah. with President Trump now uh, developed COVID. There's lots of discussion around whether the 25th will have to be invoked. We know that it's only been invoked three times since it's been around, since 1967, twice when Reagan uh, went under the uh, knife and once when Bush Sr. went temporarily uh, had surgery. But it's a whole different ballgame now, right? If President Trump is incapacitated, if he is on a ventilator, the questions are swirling about whether he will voluntarily transfer power that we know is done very easily by writing to Congress or... The thing that's, you know, may 
blow up our whole system is whether he, whether it will have to be done involuntarily. And there's a process for that. So get your head around this, help our listeners out with the 25th. Yeah. So first of all, let me say, and, and you said it, and I think everyone feels the same way. We, we hope none of this happens. We hope none of this is necessary. I don't care what side of the, the partisan aisle, political aisle anyone's on. We're talking about the president of the United States. We're talking about a human being. So I think we all agree that we hope none of this comes into play. The Constitution does give us rules, though, for in that worst case scenario where we do have somebody uh, in the office of president who's incapacitated. So there's an easy way and a hard way. And you already talked about the easy way. A president can voluntarily surrender power temporarily over to the vice president. Those are the examples we've seen when presidents have had to go under anesthesia for general procedures, that kind of thing. The president, President Trump, if his health condition gets to a point where he believes he's incapacitated, he cannot fill the duties and functions of the office, as the, the Constitution puts it, he can write to Congress and say, I hereby transfer power over to the vice president. He can set a time limit on it, but that's the easy way. Then there's the hard way. If the president does not do that, either because he's not willing or maybe not physically able, then the Constitution says the vice president can get together with a majority of the cabinet officers. And if they get together and agree that the president is incapacitated, they can write, they can formally notify the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House and if that happens, then power automatically goes over to the vice president. Now, there's a bit of a question about who counts as a cabinet secretary and who does not. Clearly, the Department of the, the Secretary of Treasury, State, Defense, they all qualify. But how about Homeland Security, for example? A relatively new agency certainly did not exist at the time of the 25th Amendment. So there's a little bit of gray area there about who exists, who, who counts. Now, assuming we get that notification to Congress. Then we enter into, I guess, a bit of constitutional ping pong, for lack of a better term, because once that notification gets made, the vice president takes power. But the president can then notify Congress, I'm okay now. And if he does that, he then retakes power. But then, and I don't think we'll get to this point because the president and the VP are all sort of on the same party and same page, but again, theoretically, the VP and the majority of the cabinet can then say, no, you're not. And if that happens, then it goes into Congress for a vote as to who takes over. I see you shaking your head, and we are definitely in head-shaking <laughs> scenarios here, but that's a way that this could play out. I mean, just a few days ago, we were worried about the potential constitutional crisis, for example, of you know a new justice um, yeah. uh, ruling on the election. That is the likes of which we've never seen. That seems minuscule in comparison to what could happen if... This goes to court. And inevitably, again, we're playing out the worst case scenario. Probably yep. won't happen. We all hope President Trump gets better. But worst case scenario is it does go through that constitutional process. And because it's never been tested, because President Trump is no stranger to litigation, we know it'll end up in the court. And who knows what will happen then? I mean, right. We, we'd be in totally unknown territory. I mean, fortunately, we've not had to go down this road. This amendment was actually passed shortly after President Kennedy was assassinated. And I think the concern at the time was, what if you had a shooting? And we had this to some extent with Reagan. What if a president gets shot, becomes comatose, but doesn't die and is alive for six months? What happens? And so they passed this amendment. I actually think that of our constitutional amendments, this one does a pretty good job of giving us specific procedures. I mean, if you look at our, 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 listen, it was less than a year ago we were dealing with impeachment. I mean, the Constitution tells us next to nothing about how to do impeachment. So at least this amendment, which is a bit more modern, gives us some guidance. But we are dealing with um, unknown territory here. 
L.A. Honig, CNN legal analyst. Thank you so much for coming back on Legal Face Off. Yeah. We'll see you next time. My pleasure. Thanks. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. You can like Legal Face Off on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And after you listen, please rate, review after you listen to the show. Let us know how we're doing. We are about to talk about the president's tax returns. And to do so, Dan Alonzo is a partner at the New York office of Buckley LLP. And he joins us now to break things down. Hi, Dan. Welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So, Dan, it seems like it was an eternity ago. It was only Sunday night, like four days ago. But last Sunday, the New York Times published an article detailing President Trump's tax return information over decades. There was a lot of information concerning his tax returns, deductions, investment losses, outstanding loans, and more. Can you provide us with just a summary of some of the highlights? It was a long article. There's a lot there, but can you just provide us with the summary of some of the highlights? Sure. And it's really it's really two categories. One is kind of what's the bombshell for the political world? And the other is what might be interesting to fraud investigators. So the bombshell for the political world is that you got a guy who is the leader of the free world, supposedly a self-made billionaire, for 10 of the last 15 years has paid either zero in taxes or a year for 2016 and 2017. That's not all that interesting to investigators. Um, Neither is the other other piece, which is that he used losses to offset uh, profits in other years. That's kind of standard tax stuff and the real estate industry is notorious for it being very difficult to kind of untangle this kind of stuff. A lot of projects lose money, a lot of projects make money. What's interesting to me as, as a you know, former prosecutor uh, and an investigator is the um, some of these foreign deals included uh, these 20% set-asides for consulting agreements. And that's unusual. Uh, ordinarily, it would raise a red flag that perhaps somebody's getting paid off in the foreign country in connection with the business. Uh, you know, in in the world of of foreign corruption, that's that's something that would jump out. Except that here, we seem to know that at least one of those times, the money went to Ivanka Trump. 
So it seems like a, a contrived way to get money to Donald Trump's daughter when she's already an executive at the Trump Organization. So something's going on there. I'm not saying it's criminal. I'm not saying it's a fraud. I am saying it's well worth investigating. And you're uh, a former prosecutor, as you mentioned. We love to have prosecutors on. You're some of the smartest people, honestly, in the world. And it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, this is, this is plenty to open an investigation. We've had a lot of, you know, former U.S. attorneys, some even former attorney generals. Um, and, you know, to a person, they all tell us that, listen, we all get the legal basis. But we all understand, too, that these are juicy stories. And no matter what you might say as a former prosecutor, you like these kind of stories for a lot of reasons, right? One of which is you want to send an example to others who might engage in this type of behavior. And this is, this stinks for the reason you just said. I mean, that, that one transaction alone would make, you know, I think most U.S. attorneys just chomp at the bit, chomp at the bit to, to jump all over this case. At least to ask the question, right? right. You, know, you know, why are you doing this? Why is there this consulting agreement? You know, if she, for, for one thing, if they didn't provide consulting services, then it's not tax deductible. So, you know, it gets a little wonky, but if it was done with what, you know, tax investigators call badges of fraud, then it starts to be much more interesting to U.S. attorneys. So do you think U.S. attorney, do you think a U.S. attorney is going to look into this criminally? Uh, absolutely not. All right. Why, why do you think that? Uh, because we've seen a great reluctance in the part of the Justice Department in this administration under Attorney General Barr to uh, conduct any investigation that might touch on the president. We've seen the opposite. We've seen the Justice Department actually side with uh, Trump in the Trump versus Vance case. So the Manhattan DA, my former boss, has subpoenaed lots of work papers and financial documents and tax returns. And the not only is Trump fighting it all the way to the Supreme Court and trying to get back there again, but the Justice Department has jumped in on Trump's side on that. So Tina's got a question here, but I just want to pick up on one more thing. So it might seem obvious, but to some of our listeners, it might not be. So a U.S. attorney takes their direction from their boss, who is the Attorney General, William Barr. And it sounds like your opinion is that no U.S. attorney is going to go out on a limb uh, contraindicating what Barr is saying to go after the president, at least not now. Who knows what might happen after the election? Short answer, yes, but it's a little more complicated than that. U.S. attorneys by themselves don't have the authority to open tax investigations. They require the okay of the tax division of the Department of Justice, which is actually more directly overseen by the attorney general. You also have to get IRS uh, on board. So tax investigations have a lot of protections around them, you know, for good reasons, because you don't want a rogue prosecutor just saying, oh, I'm going to look into someone's taxes. So they are a little more complicated, uh, but I, I don't think it'll happen in this administration. So let's game this out a little bit. The New York Times is expecting and has said that they've got more information to come in the following, like in days and weeks. Um, obviously, as we've touched on, it isn't just about his tax returns. It's about issues of, of national security at this point. He's got hundreds of millions of dollars that are going to be due and owing, you know, coming up in the next couple of years. How do you think this is ultimately going to play out, you know, in terms of the election and beyond? You know, uh, there's been a lot of so-called bombshells that people have said, you know, are going to really, this is it, this is the blow, and it hasn't really happen. So I think we just need to let the election play out. I can't imagine that that many voters uh, are going to say, oh, it, it, thank God I know this. Now I know not to vote for Trump. I think the people who are going to be swayed by this were already not going to vote for him. And people that were going to vote for him are unlikely to, to be swayed by this. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us on Legal Face Off.
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It is time for Inside Out from Chicago Lawyer Magazine. You know Tina Martini and David Sussler. Tina, of course, one half of the party here at Legal Face Up and a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery. Hi, Tina. Welcome to your own show, I guess. <laughs> Thank you for being so welcoming. And the other half of Inside Out is David Sussler, who's the Associate General Counsel at National Material LLP. And I've been told not one, but two topics at Inside Out that we're going to cover. Navigating uncertainty, and you are not alone. Two topics, 10 minutes, let's go. You guys have uh, two excellent columns in the July 2020 edition of Chicago Lawyer and September 20. So we're going to talk about the first one first. They all are... Actually, they're both somewhat similar, so we could talk about both. But the first one is called Navigating Uncertainty. Uh, David, talk to us about, obviously, we're all in very tumultuous times, very uncertain times. And lawyers are, I think, uniquely positioned to deal with uncertain, uh, uncertain times. Why is that? Well, I think uncertainty is kind of part and parcel of everything we do. People hire lawyers to help them deal with uncertainty, right? Whether it's do I sign this contract? What are the right terms? Should I buy this house? Should I sell it? Do I have to sue these people? Oh, I just got sued. There's uncertainty in all of that. And lawyers are looked to be calm and centered and in control and be in a calming force. Uh, but I think it's important for, for lawyers to realize we're also human beings. And other people have to realize we're also human beings. So we have to we have to do things to to manage our own mental health through all of this, right? Absolutely, um, Tina. To David's point, as important as it is to present your clients with a cogent plan to deal with uncertainty, I think is as important, maybe more. I would argue is the manner in which you do so, right? To, to David's point, if your clients who are paying you a lot of money uh, to handle their outside counsel work, if they don't feel like you are together in very unstable times and they're not going to feel any confidence in you to provide them with a product that can lead them from uncertainty to certainty. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think in, in, as part of that, you know, being centered in yourself, first of all, as a person and, and as well as a, as a professional is, is critical, especially during these COVID times. And then in terms of helping clients, realizing it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, that the client's tolerance for uncertainty, how they define uncertainty, and 
how that translates into risk for the client. These are things that we all as lawyers and outside counsel really need to become and be very adept at because there are certain clients that really thrive on on uncertainty. That may be their business model is to monetize and leverage uncertainty. There are other clients where uncertainty presents significant business risk and you have to really be in tune with your client to know where they fit on the spectrum so that you can um, gauge your advice accordingly. David, let's turn to your second column from September. That one is called You're Not Alone. The theme there is how to stay connected with people during these times when you are inherently not connected, right? We're no, we're no longer most of the time in offices. We're not interacting with colleagues, friends, uh, neighbors. That's especially important in the legal field where, we, as we've talked about in the many years you've been on our program, it's so important to collaborate and to um, you know, work together. And in both of your cases, you do so much work mentoring younger professionals. How do you accomplish all of the goals that you need to when you are sitting in your house, um, you know, working from home? Yeah, well, you, you, have, to, you have to embrace being virtual, right? Um, we've all been used to talking to people on the phone and, and communicating by email and text. And, and I think we've gotten more and more used to video, right? You know, now doing this on Zoom. Uh, we wrote the column was actually written in July. So I think we've got another two months worth of, of experience with the Zoom. Um, you know, one good example is, is through, through my bar association, the ACC Chicago chapter, we run this diversity law student summer internship program. Uh, which is for law students after their 1-0 year, and they have an in-house internship where they're summer law clerks, right? Summer interns. It was all virtual this year, and it's a mentoring program. And so the mentoring programs were all virtual, all by Zoom. And yeah, it's harder. You miss the in-person, but you have to make a more concerted effort. So you can do it, but I think the important part really is you have to make a concerted effort and you have to be a little bit patient as people maybe still struggle with the technology. Um, it it's, can be a little awkward maybe being on camera sometimes, but you get used to it and, and you can do it. And if you can't be there in person, this is the next best thing. You know, what are attorneys that are listening to this and watching this? What should they do to avoid feeling alone and continue to feel connected to uh, their colleagues, their clients, the outside world during this very difficult time? That's a great question, Rich. And I think that it depends on who we're talking about. There, there are some folks that I think on the spectrum of introvert versus extrovert are a little bit more outgoing and gregarious. And so they are going to be the ones who are more inclined to look for that human connection. Um, I think the summer presented a great opportunity for people to see each other in person, socially distanced to the extent that they were comfortable with doing that. But When you look at the demographics and the personality traits of a lot of lawyers, most of them tend towards more of the introverted side of things. Um, I'm one of those people. And I think people have to really make a very concerted effort to stay connected, especially given our business. We have to go find clients, keep clients happy, proliferate existing relationships. And I think people working from home, the natural tendency is to sort of stay within the confines of your home, especially if you're caring for children or other family members. There's this blurring, and I think people need to make a very concerted effort to realize and and try to create separation between home 
or your home life, your personal life, and your and your work life. And make sure that you're staying, keeping those habits, especially those great business development habits, um, what, with, which may take you out of your comfort zone in a way that you're not used to, but you need to keep focused and make sure that you continue to connect in a meaningful way, particularly with those people and clients that keep the world going round. So we could have, we could have ended off an inside out column uh, sort of uh, some reference to Springsteen. We got to run, but you know, Springsteen wrote a song called when you're alone. He said, when you're alone, you ain't nothing but alone. But the good news is you don't have to be alone because there's brand new Springsteen music that we're enjoying. Right. Right. That's right. Letter to you. Two new songs, right? Two new songs out so far. Letter to you and ghosts. The album comes out October 23rd. Where can our listeners read your column again? Remind us. Cargo Lawyer Magazine.com. There it is. How many years running now? We've got 10 years? 10. 10 years. It'll be 11 in April. Wow. I'm just going to say it's the longest and most successful running column in Chicago uh, news history. We'll leave it at that. I defy, <laughs> someone, to, I defy someone to disagree with it. <laughs> All right. Thanks. See you next time. Bye-bye. on Legal Faceoff, we're very happy to have Dave Ruggles join us to talk about a really uh, breaking story here in Illinois, locally in the suburbs. Uh, Dave was one of the lead plaintiffs in a lawsuit brought by some parents against the Illinois High School Association trying to get these schools to allow kids to participate in sports. Dave, welcome to Legal Faceoff on WGM. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for having me. So you're a parent and you've got several kids uh, in, in school. Is it in Naperville? Uh, Wheat Warrenville South. All right. Uh, great schools up there. And what prompted you to bring uh, a lawsuit against the IHSA? Well, we've been, we, we were involved. We started the rallies uh, in Wheaton, and, th- and that was kind of a big movement that kind of spread across uh, northern Illinois. And then we kind of hit, a, hit the point where that had exhausted itself. And so we needed to do something different to try to change the trajectory and get this thing flipped around. So we, uh, we went after this lawsuit that would, was a temporary restraining order. We kept it very narrow. The goal was to get the IHSA to or, or to win the thing and get it to, to swing the schedule back to the original fall schedule. At which point, then it would put it would force Governor Pritzker to either step in, clarify his position, or step you know stand aside like the other governors have done in the Midwest and let the kids play. So, Dave, I'm a coach. I coach several of my kids' teams. I know you're a coach. You have been for years coaching basketball and some other sports. Um, you know, frequently, especially nowadays, parents are accused of being helicopter parents and living out their lives for their kids. But from what I've seen, what I know about the story, the students were very passionate and it seemed like they were actually leading this fight. Talk to us about how much of this was parent-driven. Obviously, they are the named plaintiffs because they're of age versus how much your kids that you were fighting for were actually leading this fight. Yeah, so I mean, we're advocating for the kids. We're especially advocating for the kids that really don't have the flexibility to, to, to look at other options. So for example, my son, I, I will likely take him to Indiana uh, where he'll play basketball and go to school. I have that option. I have that ability to do that. You go to the inner city or some of the poorer districts in the suburbs, they don't have those options. So we're trying to stand up and fight for those kids that nobody else is advocating for. Um, we got a lot of those kids to speak up on their own behalf, which is, I think, a great life lesson, to, right? To fight for something you believe in. Um, 
It's a compelling story. There's not a real good counter argument to it. Uh, when you look around at how the other states are handling this thing, they're all basically back in business and living their lives to some degree. That's not to say they went back to the uh, normal situation, but they, they are pushing forward and trying to give these kids the opportunity that you know they need in many cases to get out of the areas they're in and in some cases just to have the experiences that we all got to have when we were their age. So Dave, the counter argument, you know, despite you feeling that like you know, there isn't one or it's not very strong, obviously the counter argument by the governor, in fact, the judge in DuPage County yesterday who um, uh, ruled against your efforts to, uh, to get sports back and to put a temporary restraining order on the IHSA was that this is a pandemic, right? And the governor has wide-ranging powers that have been, in fact, confirmed in other similar lawsuits that we've covered on our show, um, and that these times are different, and that maybe even Illinois is different from neighboring states. How do you respond to that? Well, a couple things. It is a pandemic. Uh, he's looking at the same data that the Indiana governor is looking at, the Iowa governor, Michigan, and the rest of these governors. In fact, their data, if you, if you use the positivity rate, is actually a little bit worse than ours. They also understand that the positive positivity rate does not tell even half the story. Uh, and so they've, they've got a different approach. I mean, there's no question the governor has the power to do what he wants to do here. Um, our goal was to get it back to him to clarify his position because the, the concept or the premise that they're going to allow football to be played in the middle of February when it's 15 degrees outside with 20 inches of snow on the ground during the flu season, instead of now when it's 65 degrees and sunny outside, is ludicrous. They're also not going to allow them to play much of a basketball season. And what they're not doing is they're not telling people that. So the people are about to get that, that think they're going to have a regular basketball season or actually believe that there's going to be football in the spring are about to get run over by a freight train with, you know, Pritzker's photo on the front. And, uh, and that was our goal was to get him to clarify that and kind of spell that out and maybe revisit it. If enough people realize that that's what's going to happen, then the pressure and the political pressure on him would have become so great that I think he would have backed down like every other politician does. You know, what's your next step and where should people go once they hear the story to learn more about what you're trying to do? There really is no next step. Unfortunately, uh, we we've taken this thing to the wall. We made a decision that we weren't going to go any further with this thing. Um, you know, you can get into court, you can try to sue Pritzker and question his evaluation of the data. Uh, and go back and forth and spend tons of money. And, uh, you know, by the time it gets resolved, the senior year that's being lost for all these kids will be will have come and gone. So unfortunately, uh, you know, it's back in the hands of the people who are not advocating for the kids uh, to, make the, to make the decision. And I have really, not to be Debbie Downer here, but I have zero faith that they'll do the right thing. Dave Ruggles, thank you so much for joining us. I really admire what you're doing. And, uh, uh, certainly the work you're doing on behalf of uh, kids and student-athletes is very admirable. Thank you for joining us on Legal Faceoff on WGM. Thanks for having us. We gave it a good shot. Legal grab bag time. Thanks to Ben and Gabby and Emily and everybody behind the scenes per usual. And, of course, to Rich and Tina, the grateful legal eagles. It is time for the legal grab bag here. Our first guest, Dr. John Duffy, who says, don't call him Dr. We'll call him Dr. Duffy. He is a psychologist, an author, a life coach, and a relationship expert. And you can hear him all the time on 720 WGN. What's up, Doc? I'm good. How are you guys? And we're doing good. We're doing good. Awesome. We're hanging out. We've got a lot of topics to get to. Also joining us, Noah Wick, who is the National Director of Litigation Consulting, and he's at Trial Exhibits, Inc. Hi, Noah. 
Hey, how are y'all doing? Doing well. Of course, the topic du jour is the president testing positive for COVID. Now, I saw this this morning as I got on my plane. I haven't really dug too deep in it, Rich and Tina, but I imagine you guys are all over this story. Yeah, we want to talk, you know, we always try to keep news to a legal, from a legal perspective. The good news is there's always a legal perspective. And in this case, what we're talking about is the 25th Amendment. Uh, it's one of the many aspects of the story. And specifically, what happens if Trump is incapacitated, right? We've seen the 25th Amendment only invoked couple of times in our history. It's only been around everyone since 1967. And it's been invoked, I think, three times when a couple of times when Reagan went under the knife and was under general anesthesia, had to temporarily transfer power to George Bush. And then one time with uh, uh, George Bush, the first who also had surgery and had to scarily transfer it to Dan Quayle. So for a moment there, we had President Quayle operating the nuclear button. But the question is far more serious in this case, because what happens if Trump does develop symptoms and, you know, he goes on a respirator, for example, that would seem an obvious situation where you would have to invoke the 25th Amendment. It's interesting because um, in every situation where we've seen it, the president has voluntarily invoked the transfer of power. And you do that just by writing a note to Congress. What hasn't happened what may happen in this case, given you know our current president, is he might not go voluntarily. And the more interesting question constitutionally is what happens if his subordinates have to invoke it? There is a process in the 25th Amendment for the vice president with a vote of the cabinet, a majority of the cabinet, to invoke the 25th. And if they don't agree, if the president doesn't agree, then it goes to the House of Representatives. So it's mind-blowing to constitutional experts what might happen here. But Tina, do you think, I mean, obviously we hope that the president doesn't get there and that he recovers quickly, but what if he's on a ventilator? Uh, you would think he would voluntarily invoke it for the sake of the country. But given his, you know, prior behavior, calling this whole thing a hoax, who knows? Yeah, I mean, you would think that if he, God forbid, is actually put on a ventilator, that as that's happening, um, that he would say, I'm not able to do this job. Um, unfortunately, you know, who knows, given who we're dealing with, but also I've heard accounts of COVID where people just are not able to think rationally, regardless of whether or not, um, you know, in, in normal circumstances, these people would make choices that are more balanced and understandable. So I, I do hope that folks are watching this closely and, you know, giving thought to what they're going to have to do potentially, depending on how this plays out. So that's a great point. And Dr. Duffy, this is obviously squarely in your wheelhouse. Uh, whether the president rationally would make that decision in a normal time might not be the case if he is facing possible, you know, a loss in the election coming up. Obviously, he's not campaigning. Uh, he had built his whole campaign, presumably in the last couple of months of the campaign, the last few weeks. If he can't do that, is it possible that he's not in the right frame of mind to decide whether to invoke the 25th? Absolutely. Uh, and oddly, um, this is a question I've been practicing for 25 years and never have we talked so much about the 25th Amendment. I didn't know much about it until recently because of this president and maybe his reluctance to give up power for a number of different reasons. And of course, yes, I've heard the same um, that, that uh, Tina, you were talking about, that um, cognitively he may reach a point, 
could possibly reach a point where he is not able to rationally make this decision. And as far as I know, there is not a cognitive test. The, the, the test that the president refers to that he passed is just a cognitive ability test that suggests like- to Man, make a woman, <laughs> This is not the test we need him to be able to pass in order and complete in order to do his job well. So there, there would need to be some kind of assessment and assessment tool to determine whether he is capable of um, doing his job while he's, you know, somewhat incapacitated physically. Noah, you work with lots of attorneys. You prepare a lot of attorneys for trial. The president is no stranger to litigation. Might we see the president litigating his own ability to continue in the job versus potentially the vice president or a cabinet member? This stuff is, again, mind-blowing from a legal perspective. Uh, you know, I, I would say, you know, litigation is so slow, especially now, <laughs> that I, I don't know, it, it would all pass by that time, um, unless he got reelected. And, uh, and I think that it would be really interesting to see how this now plays with uh, the election process. So. so Kim Fox will not debate Pat O'Brien. This is the state's attorney race, of course, and CBS Chicago with the story. Kim Fox, she won't debate Pat O'Brien because he will engage in Trump-like name-calling. Mm. So we've covered the state's attorney's race here in Cook County extensively. We had the uh, um, Judge uh, um, O'Brien on, on one of our recent shows. And, uh, you know, this is all, I mean, speaking of hoaxes and speaking of excuses, this is all hoax by Kim Fox. She doesn't want to debate him because she doesn't want to avoid, she wants to avoid all the key issues that he will hammer on, that he hammered her on on our show. So this whole notion that she just came up with this week that she doesn't want to engage in a Trump-like debate with name-calling is complete gibberish. She doesn't want to debate him because, rightfully so, he will go after her on all of the key issues, including Jussie Smollett, including her dropping you know, the most serious crime against people more so than her predecessor. So I found it amusing that she came up with that excuse in the last couple of days. But you know, she wants to coast to the election. She will win. Let's not mistake ourselves. Although... Actually, O'Brien's been doing pretty well. He's been trending up, but she will win because we're in, you know, very Democrat Cook County, but it's kind of an interesting excuse. Tina, are you buying that excuse as a... No. As a Cook County... Are you a Cook County voter? Yes, you are, I think. Am I what? Are you a Cook County voter? Yes. Yes, there you go. Um, so, but you know, here's the thing. I mean, Rich, you and I have been doing this for a while, and whether you're a trial lawyer or not, you sort of look for these opportunities to, you know exchange barbs, especially right. if you're running for public office. One of the prerequisites is, you know, you go to the mat on debates and so forth. And, and, and so, you know what to say, well, you're going to start resorting to name calling and all this stuff. And I don't want to, you know, you know, give you the dignity of, of debating me. I, I just think is, is foolish and crazy. Dr. Duffy, we're, for, we're in Chicago. This is, this is Chicago politics. You can't, you can't get in the ring for an hour and, and deal with some, you know, criticism of your record, which is all well-deserved. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, um, this feels like to me, you know, um, a clever psychological Hail Mary effort um, to take advantage of the chaos that took place earlier in the week and how distraught the populace is uh, about the fallout of the presidential debate. But I agree with both of you, um, you know, that there is... Uh, there is no uh, risk in in this debate for her other than losing, and um, and it's important that the populace be able to see 
their uh, the people who are running in action. Um, so this feels kind of silly to me too. It feels like a dodge and and, and a last shot effort, um, uh, kind of a cheap uh, effort at that. Our next topic involves one of T uh, one of Tina's favorite things. Excuse me, professional wrestling. Tina, a very big wrestling fan as we all know, and World Wrestling Entertainment is headed to trial. That's because they are using wrestlers' tattoos in their likeness on their video game. Yeah, well, you know, I started my um, great affection for wrestling when I watched WWF back in the 1980s. That's when wrestling was wrestling. So, um, so yeah. I thought, By the way, you said WWF. It's a whole yes. other story as to why they changed. But yeah, Wasn't that the World Wildlife Fund? Right. No, it was the Wrestling <laughs> Federation. No, but the oh. World Wildlife yeah, Fund yeah. sued the WWF. Yeah, but I don't think anybody's going to confuse them. But yeah, right. I'm talking about like the Hulk Hogan days, you know, those were the days, I'm telling yeah. you. I used to go to the matches, actually. Um, but yeah. be that as it may. That's where you met Sussler. Sussler was a, a light heavyweight in the uh, wrestling days, in the early days, <laughs> in the 80s. He's actually pretty appalled that I used to go to these things with my dad and my brothers, but you know, we'll get to that some other time. You guys can bring that up on another show. Um, but this is a really interesting case on legal face off a few months ago. We, we talked about a similar case involving take two, which is a company that does video games. Um, and it involves some NBA stars that had tattoos and it involved a tattoo artist in that instance who had an issue with the, um, with the video game company uh, portraying parts of these tattoos. And in that case, um, Take-Two won the case. And part of the issue there and why the tattoo artist lost was because it was found that only a minimal amount of the tattoos were being displayed. In this case, which is actually in the Seventh Circuit here in, in Illinois, in Chicago, um, it looks like the tattoo artist is going to get a trial in this instance. Um, here, the WWE and Take-Two, again, are the defendants, um, and it's a copyright infringement claim. In this instance, one thing that makes this case pretty different is that it's a wholesale taking of the wrestler's um, tattoos. So it isn't just part of the arm that's shown. You can actually see details of the uh, tattoo, of, of, of the sleeve, so to speak. And so the question that is going to be presented, and one of the things that um, the tattoo artist is claiming is that there was no implied license um, for the uh, video company or for the WWE to depict the tattoo. And the question is whether or not um, the Seventh Circuit is going to find that the tattoos were shown in such a manner that it was actually a copyright infringement. So there has been it has been deemed that there was a wholesale copying. The question is whether they're mitigating factors like a fair use claim that would make this not an infringement. So IP lawyers like me find these things really interesting and fun, especially when they involve wrestling. So it's interesting. <laughs> Noah, you, you work with juries and how to train attorneys to get the message across to juries who often get lost in rather complex legal theories. This is a complex case. I mean, at the end of the day, when this goes to trial, if it goes there, it will involve some very intricate copyright issues. Uh, I'm sure you've dealt with some intellectual property cases. How do you think that an attorney could get through the clutter of this case and explain to a jury in a way they'd understand, you know, what, what's really going on? Is it just as simple as saying, listen, this is a story about someone stealing a wrestler's tattoo? Yeah, I, I think it depends on, uh, on, on each side and then each side's going to have a different approach to it. Uh, if, if you're on the plaintiff's side, you might end up um, 
creating visuals and uh, examples of how this compares to uh, something that might be more relative to uh, your jury panel that they might understand. Um, and then at the defense side, I would think that, I mean, it almost seems, uh, you can almost seem, uh, have it come up as though it's a little bit more frivolous. I mean, these are tattoos. They're part of that person. Um, if anything, it kind of seems like free advertising for, uh, for that tattoo artist. So and what are the real damages to this? But, uh, so I would take two different approaches to that. Yeah, it's a great point. Dr. Duffy, uh, Noah mentions a great point that we've covered before. Um, sometimes these allegations actually lead to more recognition for the allegedly assailed party. Right, for sure. And, um, and so I suppose from a legal point of view, you talk about are there really damages or in fact, does this somehow you know, kind of popularize this thing? I work with a lot of teenagers and young adults who I think co-opt the tattoos of pretty famous uh, people, wrestlers in particular, uh, on a fairly regular basis. Um, and I, I wonder, um, and, and legally you guys are going to know far more about this than I, how far afield is this from wearing somebody's jersey with their number on it or wearing a cap from a specific team, you know, like, or does this, is, does this become effectively part of a uniform in some way? Well, in those instances, like using somebody's, like wearing somebody's jersey, for example, that's a licensed use. Here, there was no sort of like, the question is, was, you know, to your point, was there an implied license here? And obviously the tattoo artist is, is saying no, that it was a wholesale taking of her artwork. So. Yeah. And, and Tina, Dunn, when, when the, uh, there's a license to actually use that wrestler as part of this game, right? It, it doesn't the tattoo become part of that as a whole. I mean, it's like That's any the argument for the defense that, yeah. you know, it's that the tattoo is essentially part of him now. Um, and there's also some question as to whether there were discussions between the wrestler and the tattoo artist, whereby she gave him an implied license to be depicted in video games such as this. But her whole um, theory of damages here is that it's artwork. This is a reproduction of that artwork, albeit, you know, a reproduction that's on this person's likeness in a video game, but that it's an unauthorized reproduction and it's copyright infringement. Our next topic involves Bill Murray and the Doobie Brothers. Lawyers are getting involved. Rich, Bill Murray, the Doobie Brothers, heads up, seven up. Right. It's, it's one of the great uh, legal letters that we've ever covered. We've covered some doozies on this on the six year run of this show, but this is amazing, and it's gone viral. Everyone's seen it. So the Doobie Brothers attorney uh, alleged that Bill Murray used some Doobie Brothers music without a license, without permission by the Doobie Brothers. And instead of writing the typical you know, lawyer-like letter that cites to a lot of arcane copyright law, he wrote, uh, Mr. Uh, Paterno wrote a very interesting letter that calls out Bill Murray for using the songs, but also blames him for uh, the horror that he exposes to in the Garfield movies, among other things. Um, and then that generated a response, an equally creative response from Bill Murray's attorney that ends with uh, some quotes from a Doobie Brothers song. So I 
literally this morning, I was talking to one of my associates, and we're writing a brief uh, for the appellate court. I told them, make it interesting. These judges have to read so much nonsense from boring lawyers all day that we need to make our argument compelling and passionate and interesting, make them want to read it. And this is a great example of how to do that. Uh, they got their point across, and uh, they did so in an interesting way. Tina, you know, because you handle intellectual property, that sometimes, as we talked about, it can be a little bit dry. It can be a little yes. bit boring. So have you ever written a letter like this where you actually cite some of the lyrics of a song? You know, I have not. I thought that this was a brilliant story. Um, I really like the smack talk about how ugly Bill Murray's apparel is um, <laughs> and the whole notion of, you know, offering up the least ugly of the apparel to try to get this to go away. Um, it reminds me, and you know, it, this is something that I do in my practice. I do a lot of enforcement work on the IP side. And so this is something that I always try to think about. And I train young attorneys to think about that. It's not just about trying to enforce your rights that you're legally entitled to do, but you have to think about it from a PR perspective. Um, the North Face South Butt case from a few years ago is another instance where a cease and desist letter went viral. I mean, they sent a cease and desist to a college kid that was making South Butt t-shirts. So, um, you know, I, I think that this is hilarious. I, I thought it was one of the more brilliant moments in cease and desist history. No, again, you work with a lot of attorneys and you train them on how to get their message across to other people, including jury members. Uh, I'm sure you talk frequently with them about keep it simple, uh, talk to jurors, not that jurors are dumb, but keep to, you know, let explain things to them as we talked about in the earlier case of the WWE, talk to them in the way they can understand. I think this letter certainly gets that across. Yeah, um, I, you know, one of the things that I, I will mention that I've seen a lot of attorneys recently do uh, are starting to create visuals that they put in for uh, demand letters early on and getting a lot of like demonstratives that they can use later on for, uh, for trial and show that you're, you're ready to actually move forward with this. And also just to simplify something that's complex to get their, their point across. But Dr. Duffy, you must be a veteran of several Doobie Brothers shows over the years. <laughs> As you might guess, I, in fact, am. I also have a brother who's a lawyer, and over Thanksgiving dinner, he and I will talk about the overlap in our fields. And this is one of them where we talk about, like, is there a way to deliver some legal news, right, a, a cease and desist or whatever, um, in, in a way that psychologically kind of um, softens the blow and maybe makes the argument a little uh, easier to make. Um, and he said that there are times when, he has heard from opposing lawyers and he's thought like, okay, uh, there's a sense of humor here or there's a sense of humanity here, a sense of levity. We can work together and maybe this will work a little more smoothly. Um, so I, I get a huge kick out of this too because I'm a Bill Murray fan as well. And I'm just um, disappointed they didn't weave China Grove into the letter somehow. Well, in the, great, in the words of the great uh, Sam, the great Bill, um, or sorry, Paul Rudd, from 40-Year-Old Virgin. If I hear Yammo be there one more time, I'm going to Yammo burn this place to the ground. That's <laughs> solo Michael McDonald, but uh, but uh, the lead singer of the Dibbies. I got I to gotta tilt my studio for a... I gotta, we can uh, see him now. I got to give a shout-out to Bill Murray starring in... 85, of course. My All favorite, right. uh, by the way, my favorite Bill Murray story is the old story when he's at a Wendy's and he walks up to a couple eating you know, lunch or whatever and he takes a fry off the woman's plate, eats it and says... 
nobody will ever believe that this happened. <laughs> that's, that's a really good story. Uh, so New York, obviously a lot going on in New York and with COVID-19, the pandemic has made a lot of things difficult. But Tina, an issue with some sports clubs in New York trying to charge people for dues when the clubs weren't even open. Yeah, so earlier this week, the Attorney General in New York, Letitia James, filed a lawsuit against Town Sports International, which owns New York Sports Club and Lucille Roberts for illegally charging dues. Um, and so this sort of took a number of different forms. Um, they would charge folks um, dues for their gyms when they weren't open. Um, folks would try to cancel their memberships and they weren't um and they weren't allowed to do so. They wouldn't issue credits. Um, they were imposing different types of unlawful fees um, and imposing advance notice requirements that were just from a consumer law perspective, um, allegedly violates those types of laws. And what I found really interesting about this story, keeping with the theme of the Doobie Brothers and music um, that we've got going here, um, the attorney general actually compared how the members of these clubs were treated to guests at Hotel California. Um, and she actually said, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave, which I thought was, you know, to your point, Rich, let's keep it light and lively. You know, why does a brief or, or a complaint have to be serious all the time? So, you know, I think that we're going to see as COVID continues to ensue and we possibly have another um, you know, round of, of COVID making its way as the flu season sets in. It's going to be interesting to see. I think we'll just see more of these lawsuits. Dr. Duffy, I'm torn, on, I'm torn on this case because on the one hand, as a consumer myself and as someone who has gym memberships, you know, I, I do understand the need to get value out of your membership. If you're not using it because of forces external to you, you should not be charged. On the other hand, they're trying to run a business. And uh, in these times especially, you know, with memberships down across the board, gyms being closed, restaurants closed, it's really hard to keep a business open. Um, so I'm not, not really sure where I stand on this one. Well, this is tricky for sure. Um, there are some parallels between my business, uh, just being a, a therapist in private practice and the gyms that are operating but not able to function during COVID early on before telehealth became the norm in these past six months for a lot of us we just realized, well, we can't meet in person, um, and yet we still need to maintain our businesses. So what a lot of people were doing were trying to come up with like new contractual language because our old language didn't address anything remotely like COVID. And so a couple of colleagues of mine just asked people to pay half of the fee or some fraction of the fee. And then once we got to telehealth, something that we could actually work with, we could get back to the full fee. So this might require some kind of negotiation if there's no language the, that, that covers this at all. We've got two topics left. Let's blow through these quickly. I did not, full disclosure, I did not know what DWN was, and now I do, and now I'm appalled. A lawyer has been suspended <laughs> for multiple accusations of driving while naked. I mean, that, it, it, this is the story. This guy, I mean, I'm not, you know, there's nothing really to elaborate Multiple. on other than you got to wonder what's, go, what's going on with this guy, right? So it was like earlier this week, um, the Ohio Supreme Court suspended this lawyer who um, was found driving while naked. He was arrested earlier in September on a misdemeanor public inde indecency charge. He was driving while naked. 
um, and was allegedly exposing his private parts to a female who believed that he was following her. And so um, that's where it started getting really, um, to, it became a difficult and, and dangerous situation potentially. But as Sam mentioned, I mean, this guy has done this chronically. Um, he had a two-year suspension in June for chronically driving nude. Um, this goes back, actually, his appearances nude in public started back in like 2006 when he was allegedly walking around naked after hours in a government building where he was a city prosecutor. Um, it's really unfortunate because one of his lawyers claimed that this was attributable to him being treated for depression and having seizures partly due to a brain injury. That being said, if this guy needs help, I think someone needs to figure out how to help him because he just chronically appears nude and happens to be driving some of the time when he's doing it. I got nothing, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> naked lawyer driving. Enough said. Dr. Duffy, what? I, I, uh, at first, I got a big kick out of this, and, uh, and I, get, I get that it's funny, and it, and it is. And if we saw it, I think we'd all laugh. Um, but uh, to, to your point, Tina, um, the fact that this is chronic, the fact that this was uh, public um, and uh, threatening potentially to another driver, um, this kind of exhibitionism um, is in all likelihood uh, an artifact of some kind of psychological issue that is going untreated, whether it's depression or bipolar disorder or some other of the mood disorders. And so, you know, what's really needed here is treatment, psychological treatment and assessment more than anything else, for sure. No, you train lawyers all the time on how to make an impression. Not, not this way, I would, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not even really sure what to say uh, on this one. It's, uh, I'm curious as to you know, how he was exposing himself if he was naked in the car and, uh, and how he would have even done that. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, have, I have nothing. I have nothing. We'll get into the logistics of the next legal face-off. The logistics of that are gonna. Sam's gonna research that. I will not get into the logistics of that. Last topic here, and I love the uh, the lead in the story from Mandatory.com. Here's the lead: Dumb criminals are everywhere, but some are dumber than others. And Rich, I will let you know that you can introduce where this criminal stashed the gun. This Louisiana man got caught. They raided his place, and uh, why don't you let us know where he put the gun? In the ass. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bear it. <laughs> I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna get right to it. Was this in or between between the cheeks? Both. That's a logistical question that Sam's going to research <laughs> and get back for our listeners. But it's always the last place you look, right? It's always yeah. You know, where did I put my keys? Where did I leave that remote control? Hmm. Oh yeah, I remember. It's in my ass. Um, <laughs> yeah, in this case, it was uh, the Louisiana police found a loaded concealed handgun. I'm wondering, does it matter if it's loaded at that point? To me, once it's in the yeah, ass, it actually like, does. I mean, not yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like saying armed and dangerous. Once they're armed, it pretty much says it all for me. Once, if I'm a police officer, once you conceal a weapon up inside of you, it no longer is that relevant whether it's whether it's uh, loaded or, or not. I mean, just you keep that gun, do it, do what you can with it. But Tina, we cover a lot of dumb criminal stories, but this is uh, one of my favorites. By the way, it was four inch, four inches. It was a Titan pencil, uh, Titan pistol, four-inch gun. 
You know, I, I, I have to say, like, I, I just don't understand the mental process there of, okay, which is worse, getting caught with a gun or sticking it somewhere loaded where I can really, you know, hurt myself. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't go around brandishing guns and otherwise engaging in illegal behavior, but I think I would have probably opted for getting caught versus the, the latter. But, you know, call me crazy. Well, the good news, my friends, is that uh, there were some additional contraband found, uh, including uh, some marijuana, drug paraphernalia, uh, a silencer. The good news is, Dr. Duffy, none of that was inside of his ass. <laughs> I guess you have to start with the good news that that wasn't concealed in the same way. Uh, I tend to feel like you do, Tina, that, um, you know, that this guy had a choice to make. Uh, he made an odd choice. And I go back to, uh, oddly, uh, the same thoughts I had with the last story that this probably requires some kind of psychological battery to see if there isn't something going on in the uh, problem-solving um, area of the brain that is uh, driving bizarre behavior. I, I can only imagine that if, uh, if the gun actually went off and shot himself or shot the officer, what, what kind of story this would be. I wonder if his buttocks became self-defense in that case, though. Or, <laughs> you know, unwanted search and seizure. There's so many possible discussion points. They always said baby head back, right? I mean, there you go. Good Lord. Uh, anything else before we go, Rich and Sam, any, going, any more wisdom? Sam, you headed over to uh, Petco there, whatever they call it, San Diego uh, baseball now? No, but the Padres are in game three today against yeah. the Cardinals. And right. when I drove back to the hotel, uh, SeaWorld is like right here. So maybe I'll go hang out with Shamu. Padres look good. It was a big, big win over our hated Cardinals uh, late yesterday. Yes, it was. By the way, only... You know, the other time that two teammates have hit two home runs in postseason, you got to go back because Tatis and uh, Will Myers hit, hit two yesterday. It's Mantle and maybe it was Maris was the last time that happened. Wow. 1960s, New York Yankees. Yeah. Long time. Go Dr. Cubs. Duffy. Cubs are starting right now. You, Darvish, on the mound. Big game for the Cubs. Make or break. 0-0 right now in the first. We appreciate you, Dr. Duffy. Noah, also thank you to you and uh, you. for everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Legal Podcast. See appreciate you next time. Thanks, guys. Take care. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the